Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday afternoon. I'm really crushed by work here. I'll tell you the honest truth. I was thinking of just skipping this week for the podcast because I got so much to do. But on the other hand, once I committed, I committed. Uh, anyway, whatever the case is, let me say that today, uh, today's uh, podcast is uh, being sponsored once again by the uh, Bromwitz family, by Janet and, and Alan. It's in honor of friends of mine and members of my show. And again, this is uh, in, in memory of two yard sites of Janet's, her parents. Uh, her mom was, uh, I guess, two weeks ago, something like that. And uh, her dad's is coming up, Dr. Michael. Uh, Avram Chaim Ben Yosef Aryeh on 25 Shvat says. So that's what, next week, I guess? Something like that? Close to two weeks? So this is in their memory. And these papa kids go all over the world, so their kids are all in Israel. Uh, maybe they'll they'll pick it up there. Uh, now, I was thinking who to talk about this week, and they sent me the usual names. Nothing turned me on. It was me, it's got to be chemistry, right? You have to feel like you want to talk about it. And as um, a matter of the mood, that's how it goes. It's a subjective. Somebody emailed me the other night, or Friday was it? I used to do Belezer Silver, a guy from Cincinnati. So it's Cincinnati went here, Belezer Silver. I said, Are you uh, uh, sponsoring it? No. So I said, Forget it. But then, you know, I thought about it. That's stupid. The more I thought about it over the weekend, in between all the other work I did, I said, That's a more interesting topic to me right now, anyway. You're catching my attention more than the others. So let me talk about Laser Silver, who certainly um, deserves a bio. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, especially from older generation, uh, Laser Silver was the, uh, I don't want to use this word, I'm going to use it even though I don't like to use it. It's the chief rabbi of Cincinnati. It's not exactly, but you'll see what I mean. Now here's somebody who was uh, a rabbi, a European rogue, who came and spent his career in America in the first half of the 20th century. Okay. Basically, from the first decade of the 20th century in this country to the time he died, which was in the late 60s. So, he lived to be in his 80s. I think he was born around 1880, died around 1968, you know, give or take a year here or there. Now, a very interesting uh, person, but I don't like to just tell stories. That's, you know me. I like to locate it situated within the historical context, in which case, it's American Yiddishkeit, or lack thereof in the course of the 20th century, in which you'd have to divide everything from before the 1940s and from the 1940s and afterwards. And his career spanned both of them. So there's a Litvish Arov, born in, and educated in the old country, who came to this country, but it's a very young man. I think he was born in 1881, and he came here like in 1907 or something like that. So, uh, you know, he was in mid-20s, just married. And... Uh, but he had a unique personality, as we'll see. Right? Now, there's a great biography I read many years ago from uh, Professor uh, Rakefet, Malkov. I have the book. I can't find it. Uh, maybe it's around the house somewhere. 
Maybe my son-in-law stole it, or maybe somebody else who was intelligent in the which books to steal. I think it was called the Silver Era. And it was reprinted, reprinted recently. And it's not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, I don't have to agree with everything in there, but not bad at all. And he was interested. I remember he wrote his dissertation on the Bernard Rebel, and then that led him to Laser Silver. So let's get down to brass tacks. Um, we're talking about somebody who was born around 1880 or so, 1881. So that means he spends his early years and teen years, that's the 1880s and 1890s, in the old Lithuania from Yitzhakohana's time. He came from a very Yikostiga family, and his father was a Rav, uh, his grandfather was a Rav, that kind of thing. And he's always boasting about his Yikos, which he's entitled to. You know, he's related somehow to the Vilnagon and the, the, the Mosharifkas and every famous rabbi ever heard of. Okay, I believe it. That's number one. Uh, his grandfather, I think, was a rove of a town, several towns. And then his father was a businessman who was well-to-do and then went broke, as often happened, and then had to become a rabbi as a penalty, you know, make a living. I'm only mentioning it because, to me, he reminds me his personality, somebody whose father's not just a rub, somebody came from a business background. What do I mean by that? A businessman is, is independent. He can tell everybody to drop dead, right? He'd make, make his own pronouncement, especially if he was successful. Now, mind you, he came from a very Torah family, even when his father was making a lot of money, put a lot of time aside from learning. This is the old school Lithuania, a lot of time from learning from the rabbinic elite. So he came from a very interesting background. And uh, I think all of his life, he was, like, not impressed. He was not the type to kiss up to rich people. All the rest of it. He came to such a background himself. You understand? You know, it's like that Punavish wrote. They were similar in that regard. They weren't fawning over the millionaires and this kind of the richy riches because they have a certain sense of aristocratic self-importance, which is great, which is a good thing, especially when it came to this country where everybody worshipped the golden calf. Now, Laser Silver, um, he... Did not learn yeshiva. It's also part of the story. All these great people did not learn yeshivas. Uh, so he wasn't a cookie cutter at all. Instead, he learned with his father, maybe his grandfather, old school. And that means you learn through Hoshas and Shulchan Aruch and all that and memorize it. Old school. Right? So first comes the Bikiyas. You know, to, for the pin test. You know what I mean? The super Bikiyas. You know everything by heart. That's, I'm I'm serious. I'm being funny. He claims, you know, he's always boasting about himself, but it's true. It's not a boasting. He's telling the truth. As a kid, he memorized Tanakh, and later he memorized Babli, Yushami, all the rest. He really did. Okay? That's incredibly impressive. And that means there's tremendous hasmada. You don't get this Tom and Veltorin. you got to put in the hours, baby. Day after day, Chazim Baba come again, Chazim Baba come again, Chazim Baba come again, Chazim Mishpat again, Chazim Mishpat again. You know, that's how it goes. Like the old school. You know, that kind of thing. Now, the reason I say he didn't go to yeshiva, so he didn't learn the yeshiva away with a couple of mesechtas and the shiurim. So he finished the whole business. And remember, his father was a rob, grandfather was a rob, great-grandfather was a rob. So therefore, they have a natural tendency to know the lambdas, of course, but already to channel it for halacha. You get it? So, what I'm trying to say is, it's strange to me then he never tried to make yeshiva. But knowing his background, I see what? His natural field was in the communal rabbinate. That's what he did when he came to America. 
his father at a certain point after he learned up a storm. I mean, this is not a small thing I'm saying. To know Bavli by heart, Yerushalmi by heart, and all the rest of that stuff. Tor, Beis Yosef, I don't know, to after, you know what I mean? Know by heart. Then, once he was reaching something like that point, then the father sent him, and he had like an ideal uh, education. He didn't go to yeshiva exactly, but instead he learned by, in other words, on a personal basis, with Dor Samech and the Rugged Shabra, because Vince is not far from his house. Uh, then eventually Chaim Brisker, at some point, and uh, Chaim Moise Grzynski. In each of these cases, we're dealing with highly unusual situations. So listen closely. In the yeshivas of Europe, we're institutions. They're great. So you have hundreds of boys. They're learning within the yeshiva framework. But yeshivas are institutions. In addition to that, all the big rabbis of old, or not all, but many, used to have like private groups they learned with personally. They weren't competing with somebody else in yeshiva. But there are certain guys that they learn with, obviously, Mitzi What kind of guy is going to be in a group with another four or five guys learning to, intimately with the Orsameach or the Ravishavit? Or the Rechaim Brisker? Not Rechaim Brisker as he gave Shiorim when he was a Magachir, when he was a Belushan before 1892. But when he was a rabbi in Brisk and didn't run a yeshiva, instead ran what I'm talking about over here. He used to call these special groups. You might refer to them today as a kolel. Uh, the key word in those days was kibbutz. I know it sounds funny because people think of kibbutz as a collective farm in Israel, which of course is true. But in addition, a kibbutz, or kibbutz as they said in Eastern Europe, meant like this kolel type that I'm talking about. It doesn't have to be married guys, but older guys, like like a blazer silver I'm just talking about, which are already, you might say, mamala crazy bashasa poskin. And now you can talk and learning with Chaim Brisker. Now you can understand a shear, you know, from uh, Chaim Meiser. And it doesn't have to be sort of, uh, you know, what's the right word? Spoon-fed. Okay? So, this is quite a lineup. It's like murderous row. All the names. Chaim, Arzameach, Ragachar, Chaim Meiser. Wow. So he had, he might refer to it as an ideal education. You understand? He didn't go to regular Shiva. Ideal education. He learned all the Abakis at home. And the Bikiyas, not just as memorized, since his father was a rogue, he writes this. He learned, you know, how to deal with Shilohs, okay? Uh, how to deal with real Shilohs. He talks about his father having to give extreme hectares in certain circumstances, help in Agona, or here's a better one that wouldn't make sense in America. There was, a, you know, a, a butcher. Let's say the butcher owns five cows. Uh, that's his Parnoso. And he's going to shech them. And that's what people use in town for meat. What if the shechet finds four treif? Oh boy, that's a bummer. Now, I think this was in the First World War, so there was nobody to sell it to. So his mom was a big hit in the pocket. Now comes the fifth behemoth. Are you going to treif that one up too? And by normal rules, I guess, the situation was such that it had a treif in it. And, and, you know, I'm not talking about an open treif like, you know, the Mishnah. One of the trevas. On the other hand, you're going to bankrupt a guy. And his father, I think it was, or grandfather, he, he saw, he writes what he writes. He, you know, he turned himself upside down, inside out to find some heter. Right? He said, the shochet himself was shocked. Now, that doesn't mean you do it ordinarily, but it was a wartime, it's absent, it's this, that, and the other. I'm just saying, 
They had a very interesting, uh, like you might say, a perfect education for the European rabbinate. Okay? Now, uh, plus all the lumber stuff that I just described from these great people. Now, he was in the kibbutz, Chaim Meiser. I remember he had a, you know, as you would imagine, he had a star lineup. Uh, I remember, what's his name? Rabbi Mil, the letter, leader of Mizrahi, who was in Antwerp and so forth. He was a member of that kibbutz. And Rabbi Hillman from the uh, Or Hayashar in, in London. They had some big names there. I guess you call today Super Colo. Now, the story as I saw it was that he got married. It was a question of being drafted. Rabbi Chaim Moser told him, I don't know if this is true, but that's what I read. Chaim Moser told him, I can get you out of the draft because I have protection. Listen, it's Russia. Russia, <laughs> it's all bribery, you know. Uh, but he didn't want to do it. Now, maybe there's something to that story more than that. And he went to America. It's a little bit of a funny story. They came to America as a young man. Comes to America. This is 1907, 1908. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? America was going through the great wave of Eastern European immigration. Uh, I spoke about it many times before. A couple weeks ago, I talked to Ray Rice. To cut to the chase, there were about a quarter of a million Jews in the United States in 1880, mostly Yekas of one form or another. But then, over the next 40 years, between 1880 and 1920, if you will be technical, 1881 to 1924, minus the four years of the First World War, but in the next 40 years, about 2 million poured in this country. That's a huge amount of Jews. And they filled up all the cities and created an image But they poured in without anybody planning Jewish life. Institutions, chinuch particularly, you know, things like that. Nobody thought about it. It just happened. And as a matter of fact, the Rabbanim in Europe said, oh, America's a trade country. Better not to go there. So the Rabbanim didn't go, except the ones that did. So the point I'm getting at is, that our hero came to America in the first decade of the 20th century in the middle of a certain development, which is interesting. It's associated with the goodness of our I'll tell you what I mean. When Jews start pouring in this country in the 1880s, 1890s, I mean, about hundreds of thousands, so what happens? Jews come somewhere. They're used from the old country to have a certain lifestyle, including a synagogue. It could be a synagogue of, you know, uh, a few guys are trying to hold together a cemetery plot. I mean, it can be, can be for a hundred stupid reasons. Or a larger show. The, the average Balabas, I mean, what do they know? They said, you get a rabbi, because that's what you had in the old country. And in America, also you have a clergyman. They didn't know he was a rabbi, not a rabbi. Anybody could come and say he's a rabbi. And therefore, you have what you call unregulated. Once you have unregulated, so you ex- expose yourself to... Um, Abuses. To any Amaritz, Deriso, to come and say he's a rabbi and start posking this and the other. And who can tell the difference? Right? Who can tell the difference? The public is not Masogo to understand that. And so there was a huge wave of phony rabbis, reverends, and all kinds of things like that. I'll give you a perfect, I'll explain this in simple terms. Let's say I came to America and I was, let's say, 25 years old, 30 years old. I'm making this up, of course. Let's say it's 1900. I don't have any money. How do I make a living? When I go to work in a sweatshop? Not that stupid. I'm going to make a living. One thing I can do is tell people, you know, I'm a rabbi. Uh, I can give a good speech on Parsha Shavuah. Uh, 
I'll get together people that know a little bit less than me. I'll be a good pastor, make household visits and whatever. And I'll get a living. Let me tell you something. I'll at least make as much as the guy in the sweatshop. And I won't have to sweat. You follow? Plus, if you know what you're doing, you can make your Iker Parnassa, weddings, uh, funerals, things like that. That's how it's done in America. By the guy as well. Life cycle events. Speak at every bris. Everywhere you go, let's say they give you a buck. Right? A couple of to give you five bucks at that time. At that time. You're already de dealing with a, with a livable wage without having to work in this sweatshop. Without having to bust your tail. You know, the old-fashioned American hard way. So why not? I, I could do very well between weddings and funerals and that kind of business, bar mitzvahs, and sure, everybody's happy. Now, the result is, since what I just described was a Matthias, a lot of people went into that. And that means that the Rabbonus is like a joke. Right? Meanwhile, X number of genuine rabbis came to this country. People were serious. But, you know, they're competing with them. And often they can't speak as well as them. And, you know, for whatever reason, they have to coexist alongside them. So you can have two shuls on the same block. And one shul is a genuine rob who actually knows something. And the other shul is not. And the other shul could be doing better because the guy's a better at what he does. He does a better wedding. <laughs> he does a better wedding. He does a better funeral. He does a better unveiling. That's life. Okay? It drives this guy crazy. And what are you going to tell somebody? He he doesn't know the, the Mugan Avram. They don't even know what Mugan Avram means. Yeah. So, this was the real life. And to count... Now, since America is a, a capitalism unregulated, so that can produce abuses. But if you're a believer in the free system, free market, it can produce counter-abuses. So, you know, uh, let's put it this way. The government had a role in regulating certain things to prevent abuses. That's why the American Medical Association should the guy shouldn't be a quack. Right? Eventually, how did the American Bar Association the guy shouldn't be a phony lawyer? Whatever. So, um, some of these things are government regulated. Uh, although the government really didn't get into this business until that first decade of the 20th century. That's what Teddy Roosevelt is famous for. Before that, if you want to buy poison at the store, buy poison at the store. There was no regulation of the food and drugs or anything. There was mamish Buyer beware, caveat emptor. Now, um, but part of the progressive era, and what I'm going to describe is an interesting orthodox variation of the progressive era. Uh, progressive era in American history and American politics. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. The progressive era. The time of Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and all that. So they wanted to fix things. So a from variation on that is, let's fix the rabbinate, the hino. Let's get together something we'll call a good Rabbonim, and it'll be an organization composed strictly of real rabbis with entrance requirements. So as you don't get to join, unless you can prove you have smicha, you're not to learn this, that, and the other. And this way, we'll drive the others, you know, uh, out of the, uh, you know, out of the market, because the public will see who's a real rabbi, not a real rabbi. This started. I think in 1902, something like that, right around the time R.J.J. died. Since about five years before, Blaise Silva came to this country. And it succeeded. It took a while. 
it kind of succeeded, and it raised the profile of the clergy in this country, right, uh, to a different level. Because while there still were plenty of phonies running around, can't help that, but broadly speaking, especially if you read the Yiddish newspaper and the other thing, you got to see who's real and who's not. And so, whereas in the 1800s, there was a ton of so-called rabbis, clergymen running around who were phony balonies, I would say by the time you get to the 1910s and 20s, if you're talking about European-type rabbis, usually it was somebody actually was a Talmud Chacham. There's a gigantic difference between the level of the rabbis here in the 1800s versus the early 1900s. That doesn't mean they solved everything, but th but that much they did do. That's what they called the Gerdes Rabbanan. And the Gerdes Rabbanan basically said, you can't join an organization unless you have a smicha from Europe, a real thing. Okay? Now, um, it was also about protecting the chiyuna, the livelihood of the Rabbanan. Now, that's a downside. It could be an upside, it could be a downside. What do I mean? Let's say, for example... The person I just described, who's a phony. So he runs weddings, he runs funerals, runs this and the other. To be perfectly honest, if it's not a halachic issue, you can't really screw up at a funeral too much. Maybe you can, you know, you know what I'm saying. Even a wedding, provided there's no, you know, provided you're not manga coin at a grusha or something like that, anybody can perform the ceremony. You know, and unveiling is definitely not a problem. You see what I'm saying, right? A bar mitzvah. But what about if the guy said like this? Now that I'm very popular, I'm going to give hechshers. You don't know kashras. You don't know shechita. But they do it anyway. So, that goes around them saying, no, only real rabbi should be in charge of kashras. Now, I get that. However, the downside is kashras involves money. Uh, sometimes the possibilities of big money. As soon as you talk about money and religion, you're screwing up. Because nobody can resist, almost nobody can resist making money. So imagine, for example, like, I'm just trying to bring in real life. Imagine somebody coming to this country in 1905. And uh, he's got a shiba education, and he, I mean, it could be a good tamachacham too. And he comes to a town, and he gets a position, right? It's rub in this town, and maybe if he's a good enough speaker, he'll be rabbi of more than one shul. So instead of getting just five bucks from this shul, he'll get ten bucks from both shuls. Okay, that's the kind of money you're talking about. Uh, but if he gives a hechsher on this, uh, uh, you know, slaughtering plan or something like that. He can make $100 a month. Sometimes he can make $500 a month. That's astronomical money. You understand? That means the person come rich and prosperous just from the hexers. Now, the problem comes like this. Once you they know you need their money, if you see there's a problem with somebody meat, just shut up. Because otherwise, they'll, they'll dump you. And this happened. You understand? It's a terrible story. It happened over and over again. Among the biggest rub on him, I'm not going to say names, people with huge reputations, and they gave out treif. You see? They allowed shochtim who don't know shrita, all kinds of things like that. So, the problems of how to properly regulate Jewish life, even for from people, people traditional, was a huge problem at that time. Here comes our hero in 1907. He gets off the boat. He's a big time in Chacham. Uh, he was a good speaker. He's out, the person I'm talking about had excellent education. In terms of Yiddishkeit, but what are you going to do? You didn't want to work in a sweatshop. Um, there weren't any rabbinical positions right then and there, and so I think he went to work in some business, maybe in selling insurance. Right? Imagine that. I could see him. He was a cheberman, 
They can sell insurance, but that's not where his heart is. And it didn't take too long before people saw he really knows how to learn. Now listen close to what I'm telling you. I regard this as interesting. What 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 is a person's character? In yeshiva, you have something, especially in those days, you have something called Musar Seir. Especially 100 years ago. Right? 120 years ago. Time of the altar of Sabatka, altar of Kelm, had Musar Seder. Well, the ladies of never had a Musar Seder. Didn't go to yeshiva. But he said something which I thought was very interesting. If you live with Rechaim Brisker and Rechaim Meiser and those type of big people, I remember you also had to do with Reb Dabur Karliner, uh, who hung around Vilna for a while, and uh, or Samer, you learn the Musa from them. You see their Hanhagas. And you see that they don't allow themselves to be brought down by money. You see they don't allow themselves to be brought down by Sinaschinim. They don't listen to Lashon Hara. You get what I'm saying? That's the real Musa. After all, there was a time when the Masilzi Sharm and other books didn't exist. The only Musa you could get was about watching great people. How'd they do it in the time of the Bible? <laughs> right? How'd they do it in the time of the Talmud? If you hung around great people, you, you observed their Hanhagas. And that's what he did. So he, I would call this an immunity shot against a lot of the problems that popped up in America, which expressed themselves being with the biggest rabbis, many of them, because a lot of them got involved in uh, hard things and in uh, turf wars and in money things or whatever. And Relief Yisrael was always able not to have anything to do with that, which is very impressive. And he raised a lot of money and he died broke. And as far as I'm concerned, that's extremely impressive, right? Extremely impressive, because he could have made a lot of money along the way. Now, uh, and you see also from them, I'm telling you what he writes. You see also from them, you know, he's got a book, Anfieres. Go in the Hebrew books, you'll see Anfieres. You see, uh, the idea, these are old-fashioned virtues. He tried to help another Yid, especially somebody's a Talmud Chochim, who definitely tried to help them, instead of saying, oh, this guy could could be competition for me. You know, he was around great people, and he observed the the, the true Musar. As you say, he's been in the Chavero. It's very impressive, at least at least to my mind. Now, um, so he came to this country, right in the middle of this campaign that the Rabbanim are trying to get rid of the phonies. You might say, if you take a look at his book, well, I, I pulled this up. I want you to listen to this, because he's describing how bad the situation was in Europe. I mean, I'm talking about in America and the type of Rabbanim that were running around. It would be funny, except it wasn't funny. Now, he got a whole thing about kashras. So I'll skip that. That's too technical for you. But this you'll understand. Rav Echad in New York hit their leish. Now, he's a Rav. Somebody was a rabbi of the phony. Hit their leish, lisos kaloso, and they should have been amazed. Believe one of them. <laughs> a rabbi gave a heter for the guy to marry his daughter-in-law. You would have said... Married daughter-in-law when the son died. How can you do that? It's a rise. And when somebody said, you're not allowed to do that, this rabbi declared warning, and he said, you're an, and the phony rabbi said to the real guy, you're an Am Haaris. Hello, Yehuda. <laughs> Yehuda now says, Tomer Kaloso. Look in the Bible. Didn't Yehuda marry Tomer? She was a Kilohel Laben. Now it's the story of Abraham When his sons died, Yehuda married Tomer. Well, he didn't marry Tamar. I don't even have to explain this to you, do I? And WML came from that. <laughs> so therefore, it's okay to marry your daughter-in-law if your son dies. Oh, my God. Ode Rav Echad, Shahaya Kohen, Nasa Beas Magrusha. 
How can it going marry a grusha? Kvarsholi, how you talking? And people asked him, how can you recall how you marry Grusha? He's like this. No, her husband has died since then. Hello, Achar Hagerishin, Mace Bailo, Utfos Lashon Achron, Balmonic Grace. In other words, maybe at the time I married her, she was a Grusha, but now her husband has died, her former husband. Therefore, she's an Amona, can't get married in Amona. Od Rab Echot Beirachas, Sidir Get, Behuv Ishtu Chosmola Baturadim. A guy was Masada Get. Which I don't have to tell you, you shouldn't even touch unless you know what you're doing. And the the rabbi and his wife were the Adam. <laughs> well, the Yeser says, Chasm I'll get Galababa. <laughs> and then he told the husband, You sign it too, to keep it more chizik. I assume many people listening know what I'm talking about. If you don't, these are egregious errors. Odrav, Kasa, Beget, Begimel Yom, and Be'ed Echon. Uh, what happened? The guy wrote a get in the three days. And after he wrote it, So he had only one person as an aide. And I guess he wrote it a couple days after the, the, the date. And the husband was so angry, he threw the get on the ground. Tell the wife, you pick it up after the husband left. It's a crazy. Shub Maisa Barav Echad. These are all phony rabbis. Shehizmin Beturadi Get Shnai Mechal Leidos. Shloyot Lachtum Shemusam. Two Mechal Shabbases who couldn't sign Hebrew. So he filled it, you know, he wrote it out and the guy filled it in. That's actually an interesting show, but I won't go there. Uh, then wait a minute. Shub Maisa Echad Shetzidur Kedushin. Parashol, hello, hello. Lo, how you ate him? People said, how you had you perform wedding? There were no Adim. He said, "Hello, how you base condition? Do Her uncle and her brother were there to uh, they, they witnessed everything. No, you never heard of the of Absul of the Korba. He said, "I went to a shul, and a guy was talking about holach shesiv eru. Yeah, right? You know that is up and down and sideways. The guy was drunk for Arab and he was all confused." A guy had a quota of how many chickens to shech. Since he couldn't finish by Shabbos, he finished Friday night. He saw the Shokhtim, whose butcher store shows it was open on Yom Kippur. It was a Shokh who ran a whorehouse. Right? These stories and others like them testified to the complete hefkeris that was going on in the Yiddishkeit in America in, uh, in those days. He's got other stories there. So I'm just trying to sh- give you an idea. People understand what was going on in the unregulated America. Now, the Goddess Rabbanon was formed, and our hero, Elisha Silver, went into the rabbinate and uh, became a very prominent member of the Goddess Rabbanon. Because he was a gong, he, he was, and he rose in the organization because of his talents. And the Agudzar Abunim sought to get every rabbi in America, who was a European type row, joined the organization. There was a lot of politics. But when they got together and when they did things right, it was good. You understand? Some things they did right, some things less so. Uh, our hero, he chose not to hang around New York, which is interesting. By the way, Solomon Schechter. Head of the JTS. 
heard about him. He was told that a guy came from Europe, he's 25, 26, and really knows how to learn. Really. And he offered him a job at the JCS. But he went for an interview. He saw Shalom Shechter not wearing a yarmulke. He said, the heck with this. <laughs> right? You know, don't tell a, a European rabbi, somebody's giving, telling you, he'll teach Talmud, but he's not wearing a yarmulke. So anyway, conservative is not the direction he was going to go. Although he would have made a good living. So he was a man of principle. And within a little while, it became clear that he's a good Talmud Chacham and a good speaker and all the rest of it. And very energetic. All of his life he had good genes and a lot of energy. And this is very important. Didn't eat a lot. I mean, it sounds funny what I'm saying. Kept himself in good shape. He wasn't tall. He was 5.5 feet 5 inches. But he was a, 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 a powerful of energy. And he was a big mossman. He learned up a storm. We're talking about people from the old school. Blazer Silver used to stay up all night learning, you know, till 2 in the morning. It's it's not a joke. It's, it's for real. Okay? Now... Uh, he, he said so he didn't go for a New York rabbit, but instead he went for out of town. His first tell was in Harrisburg, but Harrisburg was then, as it is now, a small Jewish community. I remember his salary was six bucks a week. Even at that time, 1911, 1912, that's not a big salary. But, I mean, you can, you can live on it if you are very sparing, six bucks a week in those days. Now I'll tell you, that's what a guy made in a sweatshop. Okay? So... You know, like that. And I'm sure they gave him a house. Has to be, you know, parsonage. And his Malabat didn't understand, but he immediately developed talent that he's very good at what he does. Now listen to what I mean, very good at what he does. The communal rabbit. The rub of a whole seaboard, in which you know not everybody's from. And your job is to try to raise the standards of everything. Okay? Now, what does it mean to be a rabbi at that time in America successful? First of all, you got to organize the kashras. That means you got to get your handle on top of the shochtim and the butcher shops. It's never easy to do that. Now, Harrisburg, if it was 2,000 Jews, I can't imagine there'd be a lot of butcher shops. We're talking about 500 families, I suppose. Uh, you know, it is what it is. But he uh, put a lot of energy in making sure the shochtim are under his control and the butcher shops are under his control. So nobody's going to do shtick on Shabbos and nobody's going to shech bed. And you got to show the rabbi the deshita knife. You have to have a real cabal. You organize that. That's number one. And he did do so. Number two, you got to organize the mikvah. In America, nobody want to hear about mikvah. you got to raise, 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 cane, until finally you get the mikvah. Right? Then you have to worry about the chinuch. Here was the big problem in America. There were no day schools. And nobody wanted to hear about day schools. Everybody was in love with public school. The most you could get in those days was called Talmud Torah, afternoon school in which they would have some token in the Talmud Torah, but it's already a lost cause. This was the, in my opinion, that's all I ever give you, as I say over and over again, the big Achilles heel of the go to Strabane, but they didn't do the day schools. You know what I'm saying? They said it's too hard of a fight. It's too hard of a fight. Malabatim will not will not come up with the money. You want to raise money for something else? Able to raise some money. Even though Blazer Silver, who was a, a, a tremendous energetic and, and persuasive fundraiser, all the rest of it, uh, but he couldn't do it. So, best you could get was a decent Talmud Torah system. And if you have anybody unusual, try to send me yeshiva. At that time, the only yeshiva was YU. Before it was a college, but it was a YU. Uh, it was when Dr. Revel came aboard and started to transform it into a better yeshiva and eventually a college too. 
and Blazer Silver, uh, when he came to the country in 1907, the big push to organize religious stuff was Mizrahi. There was no Agoda. Okay? To be in the Mizrahi is a big Madrega. Because uh, it meant you had an orthodox version of the Zionist movement. And they got all the big rabbis on board, including him. And to push, you know, that uh, Eretz Yisrael paid Torah Yisrael. And the Mizrahi should also undertake uh, tasks in America to build up the Chinuch, try to improve people's keeping Shabbos. They started owning Shabbat. Things like that. In a very old-fashioned Eastern European communal sort of way, instead of breaking off like Hirsch with a separate community. Maybe they should, maybe should, but that's what they did. They tried to figure out a way that you can appeal to the mass of the people in the community. This was not successful. That's why the Mizrahi is not the dominant force. It was not really successful. But they gave it a good shot. Um, now, then came the... By the way, he went. He was a Hebron He went back in 1914, not knowing the war was about to break out, to visit his parents. You have to understand something. Uh, it's true, once you're five years, you're an American citizen. The Russian government did not recognize that. You get it? The Russian government was extremely anti-Semitic. Duh. Talking about the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas II, and once a Jew left, that was considered a net plus, and that means don't ever come back. Now, what if the Jews said like this? Listen, I went to another country, I became a citizen of the other country. Now I'm an Englishman, I'm a German, I'm this, that, and the other, and I want to visit like a tourist. No, you're not a German, not an American, you're a Jew. Now, the other European countries simply made do with it. They say that's how Russia is. It's their country, make their own rules. If you know American history, by the time you get to around 1910 or so, there was a much larger Jewish community. It was already like a million. They were feeling their oats. And the Russian government was saying, we will recognize an American tourist if he's not Jewish, but we won't recognize him if he's Jewish. So if you're a guy, you want to visit Russia in 1910, you say, hey, if you're Jewish, don't even come. Now, okay, if you want to be a stickler for it, it means that there's discrimination on the basis of religion between holders of American passports and citizenship. Now, the counter-argument is, we're not discriminating them in America. Russia is overseas. We can't control Russia. I get it. But for some reason, because of the pogroms that were going on in the American public opinion, the Jewish opinion was really riled up, all the American Jews, including the millionaires at the top, Jacob Schiff and the others, decided, and this is during Taft administration, they're going to make a whole public issue and view it from a very principled point of view. That's outrageous that uh, there's discrimination against U.S. citizens the base of their religion and that the U.S. government is okay with this. Now, obviously, the U.S. government can't control what's happening in Russia. But what they could do, this is what the Jews said, and the Reformed Jews, I mean, the biggest of the Jews were behind this. What they said was, okay, but the U.S. has a trade treaty with Russia. Let's cancel it in a protest against the discrimination. Now, the State Department didn't want to do that. And President of the United States, William Howard Taft, did not want to do that. Why do you want to mess up business relations with Russia? It's unfortunate what they're doing to the Jews. But, you know, you can't control that. Uh, all I can tell you is, that the rich Jews put significant money, they built up a whole press campaign, a PR operation, and they launched a whole uh, crusade, you might say, 
in American public opinion to to the Congress of the United States should vote to cancel the the the, the Russia Treaty uh, of eighteen thirty two, the, the the regular Treaty of Trade and Commerce. And you know the public did not say. What's interesting, the public did not say why are the Jews messing in our foreign affairs. The public kind of went along with it. And uh, there was a famous, brilliant uh, uh, presentation in the Congress by Judge Salzberger from Philadelphia, uh, who was a famous, uh, I'd say you call him today conservative, uh, uh, leader. He was a brilliant judge. And the Congress was very impressed. The President of the United States tried to block it. He said, no, let me tell you something. William Howard Taft was not anti-Semitic. In fact, he was a great friend of the Jewish people on many occasions. But in this case, he didn't agree with them. And um, the reason I mention is this is the background that, you know, American, if somebody couldn't go in and visit Russia, if you're Jewish, even if you have an American passport. I might point out that this reached its peak in 1912, which was election year. Taft was running for re-election. Woodrow Wilson was running against him on the Democratic Party. Naturally, for politics, Woodrow Wilson came out and said, I support canceling the treaty. In order to get the Jewish vote. You understand? Uh, there's a famous story, I remember a Kefet has it, that um, uh, that the Gottes Rabbonin sent a delegation, like every other Jewish group was doing, to the White House to express their opinion that uh, they should cancel the Russian treaty. There was a bunch of rabbis, including Rabbi Silver. It was a young man, to tell you the truth. I don't know why they picked him. Maybe he was already a macher and they go to Maybe he could probably speak English a little bit better. I'm guessing. And the famous story is that they got up the train station, he walked to the White House, which you can do. It was a different Washington at that time. And they were arguing among themselves, should they take off their hat when they enter presence? by going, it's a sign of respect, you take off your hat. It's actually considered offensive if you're walking, you do not take off your hat. Right? So, you, know, you can't walk in polite company once upon a time and, and, and you don't take off your hat, it's considered insult. Uh, on the other hand, they didn't want to not take off their hat. I can't, this is a, sounds funny. If you look on, uh, where is it? There's a photo somewhere. Franz Josef visits Pressburg at the Rob. It was at the shape itself, or I don't know. He's greeting the emperor with his hat off. It's funny. You know, and a bare head. Now, um, the story was that they were arguing whether to take the hat on or off, and Taft came out to greet them with his hat on, because he knew Orthodox Jews, because Taft is from Cincinnati, right, one of the leading families from the Cincinnati, and um, and he was very respectful for Jews, it's interesting, he liked the Reformed Jews better, but he was respectful for the Jews, now, if you, later on in the career, Laser Silver, our here, became friends with Senator Robert Taft, the, the son of President Taft, who was the leader of the right wing of the Republican Party, in, um, in, in uh, the Senate, and uh, was a, pretend, a presidential uh, a nominee a bunch of times. They used to call it the Taft wing of the Republican Party. You say today, conservative wing of the Republican Party. Not like uh, Trump, but, you know, pretty conservative. Quite conservative. And uh, he was very good friends with Lazy Silver. If you look at his safer, right, the Anfieras, you can see him online. In the intro... Blazer Silver says he says these words. I'd like to acknowledge this rabbi and this rabbi and my family, all the rest of it. And I want to also acknowledge to Goyim. 
right? Have always been of great help to me. Uh, one was Robert Taft. The other one was Senator Barkley, Alban Barkley from Kentucky, who became Truman's vice president. Apparently, he helped him. So, uh, anyway, when he went to visit Russia, 1914 is illegal. So, like every Jew who knows the old system in Russia, he came with phony passport. Right? Phony passport. And, uh, you know, under false names, any visitor of Heimweiser and his parents and this, and that, and the other. Look, I can understand that. You know, the boy wants to go revisit the old country. But then the First World War broke out, and he didn't have the right passport. And I don't remember the exact story, but he got arrested by the police, and they found they found three passports on him. <laughs> you know, Eric can tell something that's going on. And that means the local Jews had to, like, triple bribe everybody. I don't remember exactly the story, but he escaped somehow to Norway. You know, Finland used to be part of Russia. I don't know if you know that. The province of Russia. Tsarist Russia. So he got to Finland. From Finland he went to Norway. And from Norway he took a ship back to America. No, he basically escaped. Uh, once he came back to America, so, it was the First World War. Oh, this is going on for five hours. The First World War was a very interesting period in American Jewry. The reason, in, in, a, in, a, in a good way. He had a million and a half or two million Jews over here. Uh, all of whom had family in the old country. So when they heard the First World War broke out, and that the Eastern Europe is a war zone, which it was, and there's terrible things going on over there, uh, a couple years ago I did, maybe was it last year? Two years ago I did a series in the spring on the effects of First World War and Orthodox Jews. It's um, it's online. It's, um, you know, videos. Right? It's extremely interesting. And Jews in Eastern Europe wasn't a Hitler at all, but there was a lot of suffering because it was at the front lines. And uh, thousands of Jews fled, got killed, and died from malnutrition. This and the other was terrible. Starvation. And the American Jews responded because it was their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their uncles, their cousins by raising a belt of money. This is when the American Jews got together to do some serious money raising to help the Jews back in the old country. And uh, Gordon's money actually led the way. To be more exact, the American from millionaire, like the only from millionaire was uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, Harry Fischel. Harry Fischel started something called Central Relief, and um, they raised a lot of money. And then the non-from copied that. Get it? You know the labor the labor unions and the richy rich German Jews, and so forth. And I remember the non-from tried to get Harry Fischel in trouble. They say stealing the money because Orthodox Jews have money, you know. Listen, I hear. <laughs> and But the government did an audit, and the government said like this, we wish everybody was run as honest as this. That's a Kiddush Hashem. Right? We wish the Orthodox way they, they account for the funds was as, everybody was as honest as that. And eventually the different groups came together, 1915, to form the Joint Distribution Committee. The Central Relief, which was the firm one, and the others. Okay? And they said that they would follow the advice of the Orthodox, had to spend the money, or at least part of it. They didn't really do it that well. And uh, they certainly didn't have what I would call a Torah Dika uh, sensibility, which is a funny thing, because from a Torah Dika point of view, it's like this. This guy's an old rub, he should get more. Now, the American thing is, give them all out equal. They're not used to the idea, oh, this one's a, 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 a rabbit's in Almana, she should get more. That idea was gone. This is why uh, the Gertrude Bunn 
especially Rabbi Rosenberg and Rechaim Brisker, I'm sorry, Rechaim Moser, they said they made Ezra's Torah. So our hero was one of the ones who started Ezra's Torah as a separate fund side by side with the Central Relief. Central Relief goes out to people in general. Ezra's Torah targets needy Tamil Chacham and Torah personalities. I'll tell you again, it's a, it's a type of uh, sensibility that a person who's not a Ben Torah usually won't have to find it, to find it offensive even. Now, uh, in a broad sense, right, in a broad sense, the American Jews uh, set up a big fundraising campaign and the Godot's Run was in the center of it and people used to give their jewelry and they sent over a lot of money to Eastern Europe and they alleviated to some degree, right? Uh, they set up soup kitchens everywhere, which was a lifesaver. You know what I'm saying? That means for breakfast you get soup, for lunch you get soup, for supper you get soup. I know what the alternative is. You, you starve. Okay? So, uh, they also began projects to try to, you know, I remember they printed the chassis or things like that. So there'd be enough Gamars. I don't know if that was a major desert of American jewelry in the First World War, but that's what they did. In general, they got involved in, in national affairs. Now, when the war's over, right, so our hero was still Rabbi in Harrisburg. What's the big thing that happened in America after the war's over? A younger generation is already arising. You see? Now, go to their didn't know how to speak to the younger generation. They're Yiddish-speaking. They're, Rabbanim was thinking about, understandably, old-fashioned ways. A lot of it is, uh, whenever religion and money get together, it's a Chil Hashem. Uh, a lot of rabbis arrested for one thing or the other. What really was a disaster in terms of Chil Hashem was the Prohibition. Okay? Which came right after the First World War. The Prohibition said, when they passed that amendment, then the legislation can't sell booze. But, they imagine that in America, no booze. But they made an exception for religious purposes. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> Rabbi, I need 50 bottles of Shibbos Regal to make Kiddush Friday night. You know, whatever kind of wine. And, and this was a way for a lot of people to cheat. And a lot of rabbis got caught. It was a mess. Um, all they, and I say again, they had a lot of costumes battles. There was this book, Fraud, Corruption, and Holiness. You can see all the dirty uh, uh, things that happened at that time. And the worst of it is, big names were connected with this. Now, that means a lot of people in the Gershwin were bad news. Now, on the other hand, the top level was good. They were honest. So the leaders of the Gershwin, which are usually three or four people, they were good. So our hero was one of them. Who were the big machers who led the Agudas Rabbanim, who were elected to be president and all that? Little Laser Silver. And we saw Rosenberg, who was a big name once upon a time, today forgotten, who was in uh, Jersey City and Bayonne and these places. Uh, there was Rabbi Konvitz, the son of the, of the um, Ridvaz. Uh, yeah, a couple of names like that. But each one of the Rabbi Konvitz had a huge war of Akashwas, turf war, in Newark, Rabbi Mendelssohn, who was the uh, rabbi of, um, just passed away in Chicago, Rabbi Schwartz. Uh, let me tell you something interesting. Uh, now we're in the, if I may, now we're in the uh, corona era, so I don't give speeches in my show because of the corona. 
Right? Instead, what I do every night during the week, I give a Zoom for 20 minutes. For the show. So everyone to listen. Now, uh, the one exception is between Mincha Marv and Shabbos. Everybody got Shabbos Shabbos. You can't go anywhere because you got to wait for Mincha Marv. There aren't a lot of people in the show. And so that's when I speak. It's the only time. And if a whole lot of people show up, I wouldn't do it either. Because I believe, even though people write me letters and I write things, why you talk about masks and all the rest of it, I don't believe any of those guys. They're on to phonyism. I still think people should have masks and be socially distant and all the rest of it. Now, um, the so I'm always looking for something to talk about. So if it's Yantif time, Hanukkah, I did the Monday Balacha. But may talk about it now. So I pulled out a book I had that was given to me by Rabbi Gedalia Schwartz uh, years ago. I was close with his grandson. And uh, it's called Or Gedalia, I think. I have it in my box and show. It's in English. And he talks about the old, he liked the period I'm talking about. The pre-World War II America. And the old days and the old Rabbanim who are forgotten today. I mean, who sort of Rabbi Convitz? Who's the Bistral Rosenberg? There's a Rabbi Yudalavich. I mean, these names are unknown. They were big Tamadich Chachamim. And they actually published many of them, Shalos and Shuvah and things like that. And he dealt with real questions of life that he finds them interesting. And uh, so I read from that in Shul. It's interesting. So he talked about the problems of Kashrut, problems of Mikvah, problems of Shabbos, problems of synagogue, as you would imagine. This was a Tukufa. And you see all these uh, turf wars in which each one cuts the other one out. Your stuff is trafe. I'm trafe. You're twice as trafe. You know, or you're stealing money. You're stealing twice as much money. The result is you totally turned off the younger generation. Because the American <coughs> educated one said like this. From rabbis, there's nothing but racketeers. There's the money makers. Uh, they don't really care about the religion. They care about themselves. And so on and so forth. They use like tartuffe. You know, they use religion as a, as, as a, uh, as a cover for their, their malfeasances and things like that. This is why a lot of young people switch to conservative. Okay? And uh, this was sometimes the, um, what shall I say, the attraction of the young YU guys, because now after 1920, they roll out slowly but surely, graduates from YU, whatever it was called at that time. And uh, I remember if you read the Rekhefe book and also the Rebel book, it talks about a lot of the fact that Gorsar Bunham tried to suppress these guys or whatever because they're taking away their Parnosa. But that's a lousy basis for doing it. Let, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is the, uh, I'm not doing this systematically. I'm just sitting here, but all these ideas present themselves. Something as little as this. How a rabbi make a Parnosa? Well, you say you get paid uh, for $6 a week. Or $12 a week is not a parnosa. I mean, you can make ends meet barely. So they have a sign income. What's the sign income? It's the weddings. It's the funerals, like I said before. Things like that. One of the things is selling the chametz. One of them. Right? When people sell the chametz, they give rabbi something. Usually. Usually. You don't have to. That's the couple. Um, I've dealt with both types. Now, uh, okay with me. And then, the Rav handles the sale of the chametz, which is uh, an art form. To do Mechir's chametz correctly, you got to know what you're doing. It's an art form. 
Now, because uh, a lot of mistakes are possible along the way. Get a hold of the Look it up in Hilchus Mechir Tzchamis. They'll give you all the famous stupid things that happen in history. I love the one there <laughs> in the Shus somewhere. The guy was in jail and it was there. Pesach told his wife, uh, sell the Chomets and don't forget to give him the key. And the wife didn't understand it, so she sold the guy the key. <laughs> Not the Chomets. You know, things like that are very pop- possible. And uh, so if you're a rabbi in uh, New Jersey in 1925, and now a young shul wants to get a um, the guy because he can speak in English, all the rest of it, he's going to take away your 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 mechiris chametz money because it used to be the people in that shul would go buy for, sell the chametz to you. They give you the money now. You're going to give it to him. You see things like that. Now um, this was a big problem. So the goods are bunning, led by our hero, tried to bring up standards in American general. They struggled. It's always a losing battle, not always, but often. They tried to, to fix mikvahs. They tried to do kashras. Uh, they tried to get people to use mikvahs. They tried to get people, uh, you know, to be better on Shabbos. Uh, you know, all the basics of Judaism. But from our perspective today, this was like Sisyphus pushing the thing up the hill and then it rolls down again. And the reason, because if you don't have a day school in Yeshiva after his Beis Yaakov, that kind of thing, it's a brachal batal. But the rarest of exceptions, the kids are not going to stay from when they grow up. It's just, we all know this today, right? I don't know why, but for some reason, they didn't see it that way long ago. And the biggest rabbis, the famous communities, all the rest of it, who in my opinion... We're in a position to raise money to, for such a thing. Never did try to get a school, especially I would say a high school, post high school. So in the 1920s, there was a YU. There was Torah Das coming up only because, uh, what's the name? Mendelovitz was a dynamo. And it was Chicago, right? Chicago, which was pretty shock in the beginning, but they, they, they picked it up. Uh, nowhere else in America. And uh, Cleveland, uh, you know, what do you call it? In New Haven, excuse me. Uh, for a whole America, it's nothing. You see? Hold on for a second. Let me, let me switch this here. Hi, folks. You know, it's funny. I had to end my talk yesterday because I had to run off for something and I ran out of time. And the rest of the day was so busy, I wasn't able to resume. Now it's Wednesday morning. I'm going to try to pick off where I left off to finish this off. Tongue of Blazer Silver. Uh just have to remember where exactly we were leaving off, more or less. But I was trying to bloviate about the uh, Goodness Harmonium of yesteryear, which is an organization that doesn't really exist anymore except on paper. And um, really, we're talking about 100 years ago. And I believe what I was talking about was the fact that they uh, didn't try to make day schools and, and she was things like this, which is something that only started in the 1940s and 50s, as I think we all know. So in other words, when they had the ball in their court, uh, they didn't. Uh, they were not uh, successful in that uh, way, and the result was you lose the entire generation of American Jews, because there were a ton of kids came from traditional families. I'm talking about in the tens, twenties, and thirties of the late century, uh, and uh, you know there was no schools, no real efficient school system, definitely for girls, but also for boys. And as a result, they went to public school and things like that, and that was the end of it. Okay. Most of the time. I know there's exceptions, but most of the time. 
And so that's why, in my particular point of view, it's, it was like a failure. On the other hand, they give it their best shot. And as I said before, and especially Blazer Silver is really a model, because he was like uh, from the best that I go to Ramon. And speaking historically, you know, if you study what he did, it shows you what the position of, of Rabbonus was able of doing, capable of doing, and, and what the limitations were. They were not capable of doing. He was coming from Russia, from Lithuania. There, the job of a rabbi was, and I'm talking about the best of the Rabbonin, was to learn up a storm and be a gone, but to lead, be a monik of the community in communal matters. But believe it or not, chinuch was not such a big item to handle by the Rabbanim back in the, in the old country because it kind of took care of itself. Kashrus always needed to be watched. And uh, like I say, Shilas popped up at Dine Torah, uh, you know, mikveh things. But Kashrus, I mean, I'm sorry, chinuch, you know, the haters and all that kind of took care of itself. I know it's a, it's ironic that the Jews have put so much emphasis on this, should have developed a, a culture in which that happened, but it's a notorious that the Kahillas of old funded everything, but they never funded the schools. It's a funny that way, right? Now, this sensibility um, only changed, starting with the Yekis in uh, Samson Ravel Hirsch's time in Hildesheimer, and uh, it didn't extend to Eastern Europe, and therefore, the Augusta Rabbanim, which represented the Eastern Europe way of looking at things didn't pick up what I would call a Hershian sensibility which it ought to have now everything hindsight is twenty twenty, and so what I'm simply saying is suppose they would have set up day schools in America in 1900 instead of starting in 1940 suppose they would have started in 1900 I'm just trying to make a point here that's all then uh, we'd be a generation ahead of where we are there's a ton more people who'd be from today than is the case you see I mean a lot more uh, not that day schools are perfect, we all know that, and uh, but that would have led to yeshivas, to Beis Yaakov, to all, all the rest of it. You would have a sociological framework for developing an entire subculture and a community the way it's unfolded, as we all know, ever since the 1940s. So, but they didn't do that, okay? Instead, the old model of the Rabbonis, the Eastern European model of Rabbonis, and again, I mean the best of it is, to be an inspirational leader for your Kehillah, you never get the Balabatim behind you, to do what's necessary in the institutional um, kinds of, uh, what shall I say, um, infrastructures, kashrus being, of course, the most important when it comes to mind, uh, as they say, taras mishpacha, you know, things of that nature. Uh, you try, in general, to influence your community to keep as much Shabbos as possible. Uh, from the old-fashioned point of view, I don't know if I'm making myself clear, from the old-fashioned point of view, a rabbi would have a community. There'd be X number of people. They're not keeping Shabbos anymore. His job is to try to persuade them to keep Shabbos. You see, make a speech, use the social pressure, whatever it is, hopefully inspire them, buddy up with them, and things like, no, use the force of your personality. So you see, it's always a vart in personality rather than in, than in institutional frameworks. And we know from the 20th century, and from starting from Hirsch from the 19th century, personal personalities is not an efficient instrument for uh, getting things really done well in the public. Uh, you need institutional frameworks. You understand? So if, if if I'm not making myself clear, let me say like this. If I'm a rub and I am in a town, let's say 10,000 Jews, and if I am not able to get a school system going, 
day schools, as we say today. So I'm totally depending just on me, myself, and I to be able to meet with different Balabatim and different Bali Malocha and say, uh, and say, uh, what do you call it? Um, come on, you should keep Shabbos better, or I'll try to be friends with you and inspire you. You know, you, do, you see what I'm saying? There's, there's no professional framework for actually changing the situation. And that's what you need. It reminds me a little bit. I had a very good friend who was a big shrink. He passed away. And he tried to say a rabbi shouldn't get in the, in the, in the shrink business. You know, in other words, don't be an amateur psychologist for your ball button, which is 100% correct. And the reason is because, he explained to me, he said, rabbi is not trained, so therefore just use a personality. If I knew somebody has issues, all I do is I tell you what comes to my mind for my kishkas. So I may be a good rabbi, I may be an intelligent person, I may be a charismatic person, but I have like one, you know, uh, bullet in the rifle. Uh, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to freak out because it's like a failure of me. Mashingen, if someone has professional training, so they have 10 bullets in the rifle, 15. So you try this approach. If it doesn't work, they try a different approach. That's the whole point of the professional training. So Rabbanim, of the type I'm talking about, it goes to Rabbanim, weren't trained in this way. They had to use their personality, as was the case throughout Jewish history. There weren't frameworks and all that. Again, it was starting with the Yankees mainly. He thought of the idea of making school systems and things of this nature. Again, with hindsight, we know that this is the only thing that worked to the degree that it worked. But Delgado's Rabban didn't see it that way. Didn't see it that way. Uh, which I always consider that a very interesting phenomenon. Okay? Now, um, again, Rabban was one of the best of them. And he had uh, he was always blessed with good health and good genes, as I said before. It's clear to me he had a lot of energy. I guess when you're trained from young age to learn 15 hours a day, 20 hours a day, uh, you, you, if, if you really do train yourself like that, then I guess, uh, and, and, you, and you have a decent health, then you become a very energetic type of person. It's Rezus, you understand? It's Rezus. And uh, he became very uh, important and popular in the Gurdjieff Rabbanim. First of all, he was a big Tom Chacham. They, they all were, but he was up there with the top. Uh, that's number one. By the way, I remember he said this book. He started it, or somebody started a thing that goes to Rabbanim. They have a convention, and let's say they have 100, 200, 300 Rabbanim show up. I don't know, something like that. So they said, I guess, we're not telling you who. One of you or two of you is going to get up and say, stickle toe for everybody else. So uh, <laughs> everybody's got to prepare because it might be me, you know. If I'm coming from Baltimore, and you see all these other big uh, rabbis over there, and they'll get up and they'll say, cats, all right, you give the Dvar Torah today. If I can't impress them, I'll look like junk, you know. So everybody came to learn of a storm. And that way, you know, Yagdal Torviadir, as he said. I thought that was funny. Uh, but he was that type. You know, he knew everything by heart. It was a big Tomko, so he could just throw it out. But besides that, as I said the other day, he learned Musser from people, from great uh, Gedolim, you know, how they ran the show. And he saw the very great importance of uh, settling arguments, driving away machlokas, things like that. And as the 1920s and 30s went by, he became the go the troubleshooter for the Gozer of I know a whole bunch of cases where there would be town that there would be uh, towns where there would be a fight between two Rabbanim, for example, like I described, very common, two Heshers, uh two this, two that, and there'd be a civil war going on in the town. Now it's all about personalities. And they would bring your blazer silver to uh, 
maybe arbitration court, you know what I'm saying, to arbitrate between the two sides. Matter of fact, the school here, the yeshiva here near Israel was originally in Cleveland, I mean, the Rabbi Ruderman, and they had a big fight in the hall over there between Rabbi Levenberg and Rabbi Ruderman and Rabbi uh, Kramer, who was his father-in-law. There was a huge, terrible fight, and they called it Release of Silver back in the 30s to try to arbitrate, you know, this one will give the shear, this one will give the schmooze, this one, you know, in, in that kind of a way, a bshara. Uh, so, uh, arguments about schools, arguments about kashras, arguments about communities, you know, all that sort of thing. And uh, and he would be the one. So that's very interesting. It means he wasn't didn't mind traveling. Now, an interesting thing is he was in a small community in Harrisburg, but his career, was, his reputation was much bigger. Uh, reputation was much bigger. He was a good speaker, I think, I think, in Yiddish. But, uh, you know, the America, the younger generation was not speaking Yiddish anymore. Uh, in general, all these Agudas Rabbanim rabbis were very good speakers in Yiddish, but then they, but, but they had no connection, no good talent with, with the younger. Now, he spoke English. I mean, if he spoke to President Taft and all, he spoke English. But, you know, in English, English, not in English, English. And uh, English, you know. Uh... That's why I said before that the synagogue, the younger ones, started to have YU guys and things like that. The Ghost Rabbanim, as I tried to mention yesterday, wasn't crazy about that because the YU guys weren't as educated as they were. There weren't too many big talk. I wrong that. Laser Silver. I remember he has it in his book, Rekhevit. He said that he tried, because this is a good thing, he tried to be bring Shalom between the two sides by saying, listen, let the YU rabbi now hook up with some local Ghost Rabbanim type. He should be like a mentor, you know? It's not a bad idea in theory, you you know, because remember there was no art school Gamar in that time, you know. There's none of this Akati stuff. So if you were a graduate while you went out to uh Hickeysville, wherever, uh, to be a rabbi, I mean, how do you learn up a storm? You get it? You know, how do you finish Shulchanar? Now I don't see you necessarily have to finish Shulchanar in that kind of a show, but you gotta know something. And uh Blazer Silver, you know, he sent out like a questionnaire even. It might be in the Rakhevet, but I haven't seen a questionnaire. How can we help you? But it's it's a little bit offensive. You get what I'm saying? In other words, you're the newcomer. The Gurus Rabbanim is the uh, is the old pro, and you should hook up with the local rabbi or whatever, and he'll teach you. But what it means, you're going to be dominated by him. And a rubbing a show, uh, even a modern guy, a young guy, doesn't be dominated by someone else because the other guy will make demands on him. It, it would require a very diplomatic and very statesmanlike. Old school rov. Electrolyzer silver would be like that to make a project like that work. But um, a lot of other rabbis looked at this as interlopers and, you know, people taking with their pronouns and all the rest of it. So all I can say is that this period in history is one which has a, a light and shadows, right? Light and shadows, positive and negative. He was representing the most positive, uh, but there weren't all Electrolyzer silvers. That's the problem across the country. There weren't Rebelezer Silvers. There were a few like him. And uh, in the other case, it just wasn't a pretty picture. It was not a pretty picture. Uh, especially when money gets involved, as they said the other day. And uh, he wanted to make yeshivas happen, but they, you know, the money was tight, and they didn't do it. Uh, they didn't start a term of silver until the 40s. That was mainly from Mendelovich. They really need to start Torah in 1920. You see what I'm saying? But of course, it's easy. Hindsight is is easy. But that's what history is all about. History is to show the hindsight. That's what history is.
Now, uh, what I mean is once you start a term of service, you had a framework, you had a formal system. Then you send people to go to every town, try to set up a school everywhere. I go to some of them didn't do that kind of thing. It's, it's just very interesting. And they always claim to be the supreme controllers of American Judaism. They always were worried about the covet of Rabbanus. There is a definite point to be uh, covered of Rabbanus, but that can't be the, the, the be-all and the end-all. You understand? You can't say that the way to fix Yiddishkeit in the town is to give the Rav all the covet and all the prestige and all the rest of it. That in and of itself is not going to solve anything. It's uh, what they call a, a sine qua non. It's, it's a, 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 what's the right word? A, 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 it's a something but not necessary uh, you know, consideration. It's an important uh, point. But that in and of itself is not going to solve it. You get it? To have a rabbi who's well-paid, decently uh, compensated, held in high esteem and all the rest of it, and go around with a top hat, that's all well and good. And it really is all well and good. But that's not going to solve the problem of the youth. You see? It's not going to make people go to the mikvah. How are you going to persuade young people in America, young ladies, you're going to mikvah. how are you going to do that? You see? So it is important to get a mikvah. How are you going to get people to use it? As I said, the only way is with day schools and things like that. You, know, you got to start from the bottom up and you got to brainwash everybody. Uh, it's called education in America. Uh, and they just didn't see it that way. Now, um, as I said before, but uh, incidentally, it is interesting. You go online, I bet you, you'll see a, a lot of towns and cities. He was the troubleshooter. If I'm a rub and I'm having problems with Balabatim, I'm having problems with the competitors, all the rest of it, I would complain, go to Rabbanim, they would, they would send Rabbanim silver, maybe with a, somebody else. So that means he had the statesman-like uh, ability to say, okay, let's hear both sides, let's arbitrate this. And, and, I mean, that is the Rabbanim in Eastern Europe at its highest. But uh, it was not, the highest was not enough for America. You know what I said? The hi, the, the highest Rabbonus, level Rabbonus from Lithuania was not my speak to solve the problems, to help meet the problems of the generation in America, which is a historical tragedy. You know, it's just a historical tragedy. Now, in the 1930s, Hitler, of course, came to power. Um, nobody knew exactly what's going to happen, but it wasn't looking good. He, uh, our hero, was always close to Chaim Meiser because he used to be in his kollel. And in the thirties, um, the uh, in America was all Mizrahi. Uh, but as I said before, the Mizrahi is very much identified with the approach I just described. They didn't go for day schools, things like that. Not really, and not with any kind of intensity uh, of uh, curriculum. And therefore, things were, were not going in a good direction. The uh, uh, question then was, is going to be replaced with something else? Where I'm going at is that in the middle 30s, uh, there started to be a movement to having a Gouda here in America. Now, there was something else called the Tzire Aguda, which was its own thing. It wasn't part of the Aguda Yisrael. It was, it was Haredi. That's, uh, you know, Mike Tress and all those books they read about. But these are American guys in, 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 in New York who decided on their own to want to be from us. It's a very fascinating story, but it's on their own. Rav Chaim Meiser wanted that there should be an Agoda in America, I think because the Agoda was in bad shape. The Agoda was always in bad shape. And because he's trying to build up the constituency, I think people saw that the future lies in America. And uh, he asked Rav Laser Silver to start an Agoda over here, uh, which he did do. But I want to be clear, our hero was one of those guys, like I mentioned the other day with the 3 days. 
he would be on what we would call the left wing of the Aguda, you understand? Which would mean that, you know, he would like that the Aguda and Mizrahi should combine together. Uh, like this radiation, like many others. Simply because in America, the kind of issues about Zionism, I mean, I'm a rabbi in a town. I'm trying to get my people just to keep Shabbos. I'm trying to persuade these guys to close the store on Saturday. You know, I'm trying to persuade a lady to use a mikvah once in a while. You think anybody's give a darn about, you know, questions about Zionism and not Zionism in Palestine? It's not no gaya. You, you get it? It's very arcane for the average American family where the rabbi says, I need everybody in town who's willing to be Shomer Shabbos to some degree to get under one group, one, under one banner, not to be divided in two. But as we know, Prime did not see it that way. You know, he had his Das Torah, and uh, Blaze Silver Quartz always listened to that. And he persuaded him in the late 30s, I think in 1937, uh, to start Nagoda here in America. Um, I don't think he resigned from the Mizrahi either, you see. But starting to go to America, he came to Europe, and he went to Vilna to visit Rebchaim Meiser, which is interesting. And from there, he went to the Agoda Convention, the Kanesi Agadol, as they call it, in Marienbad, which was a big stormy one that was held in the, the spa in Czechoslovakia, in the Sudetenland. Uh, and that's the first time he had like an American participation in, in the Agoda Sisro. American participation, a real one. You know, so he became, like, very famous as a result of that. There's a book somebody lent me the other day that the guy who was the caterer and all this of the Agoda Convention, Leitner, I never heard of them, uh, the Yekes or something, and uh, it was a very fascinating book. It went all the, used to have a kosher hotel in Marienbad and all the rest. He talks about Leslie Silver being there. Very interesting book. It's called Marienbad. There were two big uh, spas that all the Godolm used to go to. Karlsbad and Marienbad, both in Czechoslovakia. Now, anyhow, uh, and after that, he started a formal Agoda in America. They had the first convention in 1939. Uh, I have a friend of mine, we passed away, Henry Picone, a very wonderful person. Old Yekesha guy, American-German. Very nice person. And a uh, uh, very stark uh, guy in Baltimore. And he was at the. He used to tell me he was at the first Agoda convention at the hotel wherever it was in New York in uh, 1939, and it was a hotel. And it's a funny story. And he said that you know the caterer pe people were rumbling. You know, first of all, it's an Agoda convention. So what type of person does it attract? A guy's going to complain about the kashras, you know. And people were mumbling, "Is is kosher here? Not kosher?" And Blazer Silver was on the head dais, and he got up. In his way, because he had a funny way of talking. And he said, I just want everybody to know, I want to hear any complaints about the Kashrut. This hotel is under my personal hexer. Right? So I don't want to hear nothing. This is 100% kosher. And then, as, as soon as he finished speaking, <laughs> his wife came up to the dais with a brown paper bag, which he took out a piece of chicken, <laughs> because he didn't even need his own hexer. You follow? The, I understand that to mean that he probably had a policy which many used to have, which is, I only eat from my house. Uh, I knew two or three people like that in Baltimore. And the way it works is like this. If you mean it, uh, call a kabob. But then don't make any exceptions. You follow? And I don't think he did. Uh, so if I just have a policy, period, as my own chumrah, I only eat what my wife, what my wife made. I respect that. 
right? You respect that. Can't be Tynus. He said, I guess you don't trust the, the Star K, you don't trust the OU, you don't trust Broyer. I only eat what's in from coming to my house. As long as you're consistent and you don't make exceptions, nobody can be Tynus on you. And I understand, I believe, exactly what he's talking about because the Agudas Rabbanin was not in the Glock kosher or in the kosher. Uh, let me explain what I'm saying. These were people, Rabbanim, I'm talking the best of them, who, who tried to get control of the kashrut in their community. So imagine, you know, back 80 years ago, whatever, let's say there's 20, 30, 40, 50 butcher shops. Because it used to be like that. Every block in Baltimore, when I was a little kid, every block was another butcher shop. Now, I'm talking about kosher butcher shops. Or at least, formerly kosher butcher shops. So somebody's a rub, he's going to come in and try to organize that. Get the uh, right shoktim, get the right system over there, get the distribution of the meat, make sure the, the, the guys are shamash shabbos, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, if that's the case, you're dealing with um, Shiloh's everyday, listen closely, I'm about to tell you, of Kashras, as is the history of Kali Throw, meaning you don't simply say, well, this is not kosher according to the highest standards. It's got to be kosher according to middle standards. Okay? Uh, it's not glock kosher at all. But it's kosher. Uh, you're talking about a community. You're talking about a, a lot of meat. It, it's not possible to uh, make it that in that case, everything is kosher according to the highest standards. It wasn't the case in Europe either. A ton of if you read the literature, the Shalos and Shubas, all the rest of it, a ton of cases are when, you know, Rav has a town and there's a question of kashras and the question goes, you know, is it kosher enough? Uh, and all these famous things where they mocked this or they give a hetter for that are always cases, is it kosher enough? Now, even when a Rav in Europe would say, all right, it's a Shiloh, but okay, we'll mocked this based on this, that, and the other. There could be people in town, Hasidim, I don't mean modern Hasidic, pious people who could say like this, I choose not to eat that. No problem. I respect you. But but you can't say it's not kosher. The old school goes like this. If the rub says kosher, if Paskin is kosher, it's kosher. You get it? This modern sensibility we have is, which which it goes like this. He said it's kosher, but is it really kosher? You understand? Maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's a modern sensibility. Didn't exist that time. So if you lived in New York, Chicago, Baltimore, you know, Richmond, uh, anywhere, right? Denver, this, that, and the other. If the rub says kosher, that's what defines whether it's kosher. Now, in real life, things happen at schlachtises. Things happen with shochtim. Things happen with the with the hosts, with the bosses. And you end up with all kind of bitty ever situations. That is what life is like. And uh, then, then, in a good situation... Every shell is referred to the rough. So let's say the shelchtim screwed up here or there, or the balabatim or the shlachtai screwed up here or there, or the butcher screwed up here or there. What do you do? You take it to the rough. And then he has to, if he's a Talmud Chacham, he has to weigh it and say it's kosher or it's not kosher. If he says it's kosher, it is. That's how it went. Someone could say, I personally don't want to use that because I'm not comfortable with that heter. Not that the heter is wrong. You get what I'm saying? I'm not challenging that when he made it kosher, it is kosher. It is halachic kosher. But it's kosher according to minimal standards. It is kosher. It is kosher. But, you know, it's a, 
you know, not according to the shach, you know, not according to this, not according to that. And I myself would not would rather not eat that. So there are many people I know in the 20th century for sure. They presided over hechshers and things like that, and they made sure the stuff was kosher, and they ran efficient systems so any shiloh was referred to them. But they themselves didn't eat from their own, uh, you know, shechita. It's not a hypocrisy. In the sense, it's good enough for you, not to go for me. It's good enough for you, and it's good enough for me. I choose, as a chumrah, you know, I choose, as a matter of piety, not to eat that. That's all. So that's very much, you know, the kind of person he seems to have been. Um, now, uh, when they introduced the agur in this country, it was already like a divisive business. Uh, if it wasn't for laser silver, it wouldn't have gotten off the ground the way it did. But, uh, uh, as we all know, this coincided with the Second World War. And so a whole bunch of things came together in unusual ways. Uh, I repeat, he kept his membership in the Mizrahi also. Right? He wasn't the type to be like in the Torah character or anything. Like Quite the opposite. Uh, just like the Rabbana back in Lithuania. Uh, if you can get in Israel, great. You know, once you get in Israel, we'll try to make it as from as you can. Not going to say because he's not from, not, they're not going to win in Israel. But he was the head of the Aguda. We'll see later on, after the war, a lot of the Aguda types, especially the Hasidim, didn't like him because they considered him too far left on that spectrum. Uh, insufficiently anti-Zionist, let's put it that way. Uh, uh, and I remember, it's it's funny, by the way, they had the first convention in um, New York, maybe Jackson Beach, something like that, I don't remember. They had the second one he made in Cincinnati in 1940 when the war was going on. Can you imagine that? In the Midwest in Cincinnati, besides the fact that that's where the former located, but just in general, uh, and uh, I remember Rakeva had this. They had dancing outside in the streets, all these big rabbonim with the black coats and all the rest of it. Must have been quite an interesting sight in Cincinnati. And the following year was in Baltimore, Maryland. That's a subject maybe one day I'll return to, or uh, I never wrote that up. That's interesting. Yeah, they go to convention here in Baltimore. Now, I have skipped the fact that uh, after a number of years, a person like I'm describing, who's running around arbitrating cases, passing in shalas, making speeches, being head of good start running, is too big for Harrisburg. You understand? It's too big. It's too small of a community. 2,000 people. Uh, and so he then went to Springfield uh, in uh, Massachusetts. It's not near where Springfield is. It's not close to Boston, really. Uh, it must be 90 miles away, something like that. And uh, so there's a community of about 10,000, I would imagine. So this is a very typical rabbinical career. You go from a community of 2,000 to a community of 10,000. And uh, that didn't last too long because uh, although he brought all his talents to the case, I think he tried to do something with the chinuch there, if I remember correctly. I think he tried to, because he must have seen, he was very smart, obviously. He must have seen what I've been saying, which is, Unless we fix up the chinuch better than what it is. I don't think he went for day school. That was not to be taught about, but make a better Torah system or something like that. He wasn't really backed. He wasn't really backed. And, uh, but we'll never know because, of course, what happened was he went to, to, uh, to Cincinnati to arbitrate a case, I think it was. Cincinnati used to have uh, Rabbi Lesser, I think. 
Uh, it's in the Leo Young book, Avram Gershon Lesser, who was a big time Chacham of the old school in the 1800s, the early 1900s. And then when he passed away, the question was who was going to take over. And, uh, boy, the long and the short of it is they offered him the job. And he took it. So in Cincinnati, you're talking about a community of 25,000, but the front community, the Orthodox community, was probably also 10,000, I imagine. Something like that. Uh, what is it, four or five shoals? The people in Cincinnati listening now will will be able to correct me. Uh, so he would be like, in other words, the rov of the community here. Now, what are we talking about when I when I use these terms? We're talking about the the Agus Rabbanim chief rabbi type. What does the term chief rabbi mean in America? We run up against a problem in America. You had separation of church and state, and you had radical independence even within that because. I don't like the shul, I, I leave and join and, and start another shul. There's no legal way anybody can pressure anybody. And the Balabatim were very uh, independent-minded, that's what they felt like being. And so to get there, to get control of them, or to, to influence them is a better term, required a great deal of tact and uh, ability and energy. And he undertook to try to be the rabbi of the four or five shuls, whatever it was in, in Cincinnati, and they all agreed to go under him. Maybe there was some guy, I forget, Epstein, whatever, that didn't, you know, there's always some uh, dissident, and he got a hold of the city. In his time, he took over the butcher shops, and he took over the shochtim, and was under his control, which is a good thing. And he put in, you know, that should be the right way. But like I told you before, any shall get sent to him, and he will poskin whether it's kosher or not. If he says it's kosher, it's kosher. You may not be comfortable with the heter. That doesn't mean anything. You can personally choose to use it or not, eat it or not eat it. But I'll tell you right now, you know, when he gives up sock, it's up sock. You get it? Now, what I just talked about being a, a machmer, that hardly existed in America. Very few people even have the knowledge to be sensitive to the fact that this is only according to the, you know, uh, the, the Ramon, not according to the Shach or something. They don't even know what those words mean. So de facto, he ran the city. Uh, it's very famous. I think everybody knows, or you should know, Cincinnati was the headquarters of uh, the Hebrew Union College. That's the uh, the rabbinical school, the yeshiva, can I call it that term, of the Reform Movement. In the time he came there in 1931, the Reform Movement was still in the classical phase in which they were super-duper guyish, uh, super-duper. Uh, they were going to undergo some change in the following decade because of Hitler and the Holocaust, all the rest of it and the alienation from Zionism. But when he came there, it was a full-blown. I remember in um, the Kefet book that he came there and he wanted to make a better mikvah. Uh, you know, he came to the city and wanted to make a mikvah. They probably had some junky little, rinky-dinky, uh, ugly mikvah. Mikvahs was a terrible problem in America. There weren't mikvahs, and when there were a lot of places used to do swimming pools, um, they'd use it at night. What's his name? If you're interested in this subject whatsoever, there's a fantastic book called Taros Mayim, I think, from Rabbi Tolushkin. Well, it's a golden oldie. It's in Hebrew. And uh, he has wonderful descriptions of what the problems of mikvah were in America at that time. You know, it was a terrible situation. And to get a regular mikvah, nothing fancy, just, you know, uh, clean and regular, was itself a feat. And I remember he, he raised the money to build one in, like, a nice neighborhood, the Reform neighborhood, the Reform tried to block him, 
which I understand. It's like now these people say, I don't want a shul next to me, not in my backyard, especially a mikvah. Uh, he fought them. He went to court. They, they took him to court, or at least they were going to take him to court. And they hired Murray Seasongood. I don't know why I remember that name, uh, who, who had been the mayor, uh, the head of reform, and he'd been a, a progressive mayor. So he was a prominent personality to represent the reform in the courts to block the building of a mikvah. And our hero hired the number one Geisha law firm in Cincinnati, the number one white shoe law firm, Robert Taft, son of President Taft, as I told you before. And uh, when the reform, this is uh, uh, kicking him uh, where it counts. These reform, they're ultra sensitive with the Geimzig. And the number one Geisha firm, uh, the Blue Blood, uh, took the case, Robert Taft. As a matter of religious freedom, right? If you're trying to block a mikvah, basically the reform were tiny that it's not a religious institution. A synagogue is a religious institution. A mikvah is just a superstition. And um, this is cool. So Robert Taft, uh, as a matter of idealism, I think, seriously, uh, he was an interesting guy. And he said he'll take the case. And he has a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I'm not a lawyer. You know, we interview the client. A deposition, maybe? Uh, which Rekhafet, I remember, put in the back of the book, in which he's t- trying to say, listen, he's a guy. What is a mikvah? What's its significance? What kind of case are you going to make in court? And, you know, I remember he said, here's Razor Silver, who was already Americanized, already in the country for 25 years, and he's trying to explain. He said, well, a mikvah is needed for Kalem. A mikvah is also needed for, trying to explain in English, for Zov, <laughs> although some say you need a Mayan, uh, a mikvah is necessary for uh, regional Latuma, you know, all this kind of arcane business is according to the Rambam and not according to the Ravid. And like paragraph seven, mikvah is also needed for marital relations. And I remember Taft like circled that. He said, I think that's the one we're going to bring up in court. <laughs> you know, don't try to explain to the judge the Rambam versus uh, the Ravid on, uh, on, on Tumas Kalim uh, or something. Taurus, Caleb. And the point of the story is that um, they pulled the case. Notice they, they withdrew the suit because it was such a, uh, uh, what's the right word? They were so embarrassed to be in a situation of reform where they're going against Robert Taft uh, and they look like the bad guys because he's defending freedom of religion. They look like they're trying to suppress freedom of religion. And reform is supposed to be so American and so into freedom of religion then the one day they withdrew the case. And I remember Taft sent him a bill for a couple thousand dollars at that time, because remember, he was the top law firm. But he said, you don't have to pay, the bill is paid in full. So as he did, pro bono, you see? And that was a smart move on the part of Taft, because later on he ran for senator in Ohio, you know, Cincinnati's Ohio, uh, repeatedly, and relations have always backed him. Now, I won't say the Orthodox vote in, in Ohio, you know, won the election, but every bit helps. You see, every bit helps. And uh, also, Abba Hill Silver, who was the head of reform, said he used to say Taft got elected on the Silver vote, you know, because Abba Hill Silver was in Cleveland. So, uh, but, uh, and I said in his safer, he said, I want to thank two Goyim. He says this, Chasidio Mazolam, one is Robert Taft. Right? So, 
when Taft got elected as a senator in 1938, uh, he often helped uh, his constituent. So we say, because Taft was from Cincinnati, Blaise is from Cincinnati. So it didn't hurt to have a very important and influential Republican senator uh, in the 1940s, especially in the Hitler era, on your side. So this is what I mean when I say he brought the Ogoda Convention to, to Cincinnati in, in 1940. That's the famous case where Yoshiba Soloveitchik, J.B. Soloveitchik at that time was in the Aguda. And that's where he gave a famous hespit for Heimeiser. Uh The white guys don't know uh, is part of their lore. Uh, they, uh, later, of course, Rabbi Soloveitchik withdrew from the Aguda, but I'm talking about at that time. Then came, of course, the World War II. World War II was unprecedented. Uh, what is American Jewry going to do about it? Again, our hero got in early, best he could. Now, nobody saw the way it's going to happen. The uh, Holocaust, obviously, is sui generis. So from the point of view of history, when 1939 started, it wasn't exactly clear what's going to happen. Hitler invaded Poland. Is that it? Is he going to conquer Poland? That's going to be the end of the war. You know and I know that was the beginning of a six-year war, which spread all over the world. But it wasn't clear at that time. The Vilna, where Chaim Meiser was, and the yeshivas and that sort of thing, tried to run away. Most of them did to Lithuania, which was not in the war. It was a separate country. The uh, Relaser Silver and his colleagues set up what's called Varatsal. They made the Varatsal. So in other words, the war started at the beginning of September. I think they made the Varatsal like six or seven weeks later. And the idea over there was to coordinate with Chaim Meiser and try to raise money to send to help the situation over there of the refugees who are escaping from Poland, especially the yeshivas, and locating themselves in um, in Lithuania. Now, what you have to understand is, this is all partially by itself, I'll just give Russia a proctor. When the war came, there was no such thing as American Jewry. There were a whole bunch of little groups. There the labor groups, the Zionist groups, you know, the, uh, the secular groups, uh, progressive groups, it's that and the other. So, the, the Vatasol was the from group. So the labor Zionists were trying to rescue labor Zionists from Europe and, and bring them to America and Palestine. The Bundists were trying to rescue Bundist leaders and stuff like that and do the same thing. You understand? Uh, there were those who were into intellectuals, uh, that famous guy, Shagaivarian Fry, to bring out important Jewish intellectuals like Chagall and Hannah Arendt and all that. That's what they concentrated on. Uh, so nobody was into saving the Tzibor. They were all into saving their their particular Chera. So the Vada Tzal was was a variation of that. They simply said, we're interested in the from. You want to save a Bundes leader, I want to save a big rabbi. You want to save somebody from, uh, you know, uh, an important uh, 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 Jabotinsky type, I want to save Yeshiva guys. So they really were a sectoral. That's what they were. Okay? And... Uh, they were sectoral. Now, the problem is, uh, what Klaalistral needed was something bigger than that. But they didn't see it in the beginning. So in 1930, 40, 39, 40, even 41, they were thinking, uh, saving, you know, Mir Yeshiva, this, that, and the other. The big plant over there. How should I explain this? Let me let me just say what if. If it was up to Rebelezer Silver and Nevada Sola, they would have gotten a special permit from Roosevelt. I'm just making this up. I will give you 10,000 uh, certificates. 
And with this 10,000, or whatever number, you know, 5,000, 10,000, I'm just making a number up. With these 10,000 certificates, you can bring over to America the Mir Yeshiva, the Communist Yeshiva, the Tels Yeshiva, the Slobot Yeshiva, etc. And the Beis Yaakov and Krakow. You get what I'm saying? Those you bring your Hebra over, and that's it. Get off my back. Uh, had that happened, it didn't happen. But had that happened, then we would say like this. All the elites of the Torah world were rescued. At least... And you know this big rebbe and that big rebbe, and all that, all, all the all the machers. So then, what happened was that the bnei Torah, the, the Torah world, I say, would have been rescued. It was possible to get uh, visas out. The Nazis would have let you if you had an American visa, you could go. If you know the history at that time, now, the Babich rebbe, for example, his guys arranged it. They pulled him out of the ghetto and they took him right to America. So, uh, if they would have, this was their goal. It didn't reach it. This was the goal. And they were talking with the U.S. government in Washington to accomplish this point. Uh, it got a few out, or Byron Cutler, people like that, but not overall. But even they didn't think, how are you going to rescue a million Jews, two million Jews, three million Jews? No, it's the Hamonam. The Hamonam was just up the creek. Uh, how are you going to do that? No country is going to take in large numbers of Jews. They didn't want them. It was hard enough to get to the, the, the 10,000 or 5,000. So what's going to be? You understand? This is a tragedy of the Holocaust. Now, this was the mindset. It's easy for me to talk because we're looking back, but that's what I'm doing. This was the mindset at that time. And uh, uh, and this is what they concentrated on. Uh, that's why Relazer Silver himself was a very energetic and creative guy. He, he's, it's a very famous story. He sent over... The, uh, as his personal representative to Chaim Meiser, he said, I don't know exactly going on. You go to Europe and check out the situation and report back to me. Contact Chaim Meiser and see what's happening. He sent the guy, Schmidt. I think his name, if I remember correctly, was Samuel Schmidt, who was not from and was the publisher of the local Jewish Times, the Jewish uh, press, you know, the local Jewish Cincinnati paper. If I remember, it was called Every Friday or something like that. You know, like they used to have in all these uh, towns. And, uh, you know, a Yiddish-speaking, uh, but American guy from Lithuania, who was a personal chassad of Blazer Silver. This is what I meant by saying before. He himself uh, was uh, a communal rabbi, and even people you couldn't persuade to be Shemr Shabbos, but you persuade them, you know, to be on your team, you understand, to help. And, um, and it's a famous story. You can read about it. I forget where. And he traveled, in other words, in the high seas, in the middle of the war, and he went to Lithuania. He was an American citizen by then. And he met Reb Chaim Meiser. And his famous story, he was like very uh, overwhelmed by him and became from as a result of this encounter. And they tried to cooperate in uh, getting money for the yeshivas that were pouring into Lithuania from Poland and that sort of thing. When the larger picture, it didn't work. Because Chaim Meiser died and the Russians came and took over. The Stalin did. And as we all know, the best you could get was the Mir Yeshiva ran away across Russia to Shanghai, that sort of thing. It didn't turn out the way they wanted. What they wanted was that the U.S. government will uh, just give the 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 visas and then bring the Yeshivas over, and then we won't be in your hair anymore. Right? Then we won't bother you every Monday and Thursday with help, help, help. But it didn't work. And then, so what I'm trying to say is events overtook. Because by the time you get to 1941... Uh, Hitler invaded uh, Russia and then became the real Holocaust. They killed, uh, was it a million and a half 
in six months in uh, in the Soviet Union. In other words, in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Belarus, Ukraine, Hitler just, Hitler, it was a holocaust by bullets. They shot, this is before the concentration camps, they physically shot uh, one and a half million Jews. Uh, and then, as we all know, the Holocaust got into full swing because then uh, late in, in 41 came Pearl Harbor and then Hitler declared war. And when, when Hitler declared war in America, that's when he set up the Auschwitz and all the other concentration camps to totally kill all the Jews. This didn't register for the Levy Silver and the others the magnitude of the situation. But by 42, it started to register. And then what do you do? And so what does the Vada Tzala do, you know, when they're faced with, you have to save millions of people, and it's not a question of a couple thousand passports over here, a couple thousand visas, it's overwhelming. You understand? And then the Vada Tzala and the other groups also started to, you know, uh, assimilate what I just told you, to digest it. And said, wow, the old cholesterol is being wiped out. And it took a while for them to get their act together. Uh, the Vanatsola and the Blazer Silver, I mean, they just represented the Orthodox, which was not a big group. The main groups were like the Federations, the Stephen Wise, and the others. Many books written on this. And as we all know, the American Jews did not step up to the plate the way they needed to. And uh, the Frum didn't either, until you get to like 43, I guess. By 1943, it became clear to anybody who wanted to see that all these articles you're reading in the paper about from the middle part of the New York Times they're talking about the extermination of the Jewish people. Uh, that's when uh, people like uh, Laser Silver and others, that's when they started to uh, say, we have to tr see what we can do to rescue whoever we can rescue. Now, to be perfectly honest, by the time they um, came to the conclusion and understood the situation, by the time they understood the situation, it was too late. What do I mean when I say it's too late? Listen, every life counts, and you can save 100,000, 100,000 there, and that's not a clinic cut. What am I, stupid? 100,000 Jews? It's amazing. But by this time, Hitler had wiped out the Jews of Eastern Europe. Uh, by 43, by the middle of 43, Polish Jewry, Lithuania, Latvia, and all that, have been pretty much exterminated. I adore Yechidim who survived, but you know what I mean. Auschwitz said they just killed them in industrial slaughter. And uh, Dutch Jewry and, you know, Austrian Jewry. You know what I mean. So, no, the Germans were just that good. And uh, what was left were Jews like in um, Hungary, Romania, and some of those Balt Balkan countries here and there. So, if you want to get real, you're talking about, it's too late to save three or four million Jews. They're gone. The, the last million, right, a, a million and a half, something like that. If you want to be exact, there's something like uh, between Hungary and Romania, you probably had a million and a half Jews, approximately. Right? Between Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria, you had about a million and a half Jews, uh, which is a large. And uh, can they save them? Uh, and our hero and the others, they were trying to you know, walk in the dark, try to figure out what's going on. And they were pressing the Roosevelt administration to do something. What exactly can you do? Like I said before, you can't bring back the three or four million that are already killed. So the most you can do, which is terrible, the most you can do is try to save the one and a half million that are left, approximately. And so that's what they did. 
So he started going to see uh, Secretary of Treasury Morgenthau and whoever they knew in the government. There's a whole huge parsha. I can't get into this in detail over here. But, uh, you know, and the Bada Solo tried to do its best. Uh, this is where you hear about Weissmandel and the question, could you negotiate with the Nazis and save Jewish life by giving them stuff? Uh, there's a whole huge sugi by itself, which basically raises the question, were the Nazis bribable? And the answer is yes. And would it work to bribe them uh, to save the Jewish lives? In the context of World War II, well, it depends what you mean. If you're talking about get, putting some money in somebody's bank account, that's one thing. Uh, and the Vatasol did that and tried to do things like that. Uh, if you're talking about giving, uh, if you're talking about helping the Nazis end the war with a peace settlement that'll help them, that was beyond the hands of Vatasol. And I don't even know if it's the right thing to do. Uh, you say, like, this, anything's the right thing to do that will save Jewish lives. This is such a hard thing to answer because. Um, you're going to leave Hitler in power. You see? That, what I just said was the point of view of the Roosevelt administration. You've got to finish off Hitler. Uh, even though it means that the Jews will be dead. But from the other point of view, you say, what's the point of finishing off Hitler if all the Jews are dead? So it's it's a tricky, it was a terrible situation. And nobody can second guess, although many have done that. Uh, all I can say is that uh, people like the Vatican Relations Silver, they tried to do whatever they can do, legal and illegal, to help influence the governments in Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria, you know, don't kill the Jews, don't hand them over to Hitler. They were partially successful and partially unsuccessful. Looking back and giving a grand sikum, they were partially successful and partially unsuccessful. To put it in simple terms, they were unsuccessful in Hungary, they were, yes, successful in uh, Romania and Bulgaria. That's how it works out. So the Jews in Hungary, Hitler came in in March 44 and killed everybody. I think everybody knows that. Or or didn't kill everybody, but killed hundreds of thousands very quickly, starting like May of 44. But not Romania, okay? It's a very complicated story. I can't do justice in a little podcast, whatever. All I'm trying to say is religious, it was the middle of a storm in the war years. Middle of a storm, right? Uh, it's a, you know, it's a remarkable story. And, uh, he teamed up on one occasion with um, the Jabotinsky guys, the, with Peter Bergson over here, with a nephew of Cook, who didn't like the way the American Jewish community is mishandling this and not doing anything, uh, which is true. And uh, basically, American Jews didn't do what they could have done to help the Jews in World War II. Now, I want to be very clear. There is no way American Jewry could have saved six million. I just want you to understand that. No matter what, they couldn't have saved six million. They definitely couldn't have saved three million. They could have saved a million. If you want to get down to it. Right? Or close to that. They couldn't have saved the other four or five million. Right? Uh, it's actually not six million. If you get the numbers, it's five and a half. And maybe even a little less, maybe five point three. Doesn't matter. But they couldn't have saved the five and a half million Jews. Uh, the way things were. But they could have saved a lot more than they did save. So, call Mekayim Nefesh, Achas, Misrael, and so forth. Uh, they could have been Mekayim a lot of Nefeshes. But they couldn't have, it, but it's a myth. Oh, if only American Jewry won this time, the other could have saved the six million. That's a slogan. You know, you got, you're not going to stop Hitler in 1941 from shooting a million and a half Jews right then and there. You're not going to stop Hitler in 1941, 42, 
from just sending all the Polish Jews to the gas chambers because he was in charge of that area and America was not strong enough to do anything about it. Okay? Uh, it's a, uh, I, I shouldn't even talk about it. I can't help you talking about the blades of silver. It's such a complicated subject. It's a fascinating subject. It's a very complicated subject that most people do not understand, especially if all you read is a perfidy or something like that. But whatever the case is, he was in the middle of a storm trying to do the best he can. And one of the things, here's where I'm going with this. One of the things he got into, one of the things he got into uh, was this famous uh, public relations shtick. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean. The regular American Jewish community, the federations, they wanted to work through the State Department, which wasn't really helping them, and not make too much noise, and not give Hitler any ammunition that there's a war to save the Jews, because that's what Hitler wanted to claim, and things like that. The, those who were dissidents were like the Jabotinsky types, who said, you do whatever you can to save a Jewish life. And a whole group of them, led by Peter Bergson, and Netanyahu's father, you know, Professor Netanyahu's father, uh, and people like that in America tried to uh, raise hell through PR. Um, and they were pretty successful. They made the Holocaust a topic on American uh, TV, uh, on news. And uh, eventually forced Roosevelt, through public opinion stuff, to set up something called the uh, War Refugee Board, which might which really meant the, the, the committee to try to save whatever Jews we can. But it was that started in early 44, because of election year. And it's a, so they did a lot of this through PR stunts. And one of the most famous of them was he got a couple hundred rabbis to make a, a march on Erebium Kippur or something like that, to, or the, a few days for Erebium Kippur, to go to march to the White House to uh, pre present a petition to FDR, please save the Jews. And uh, these were a couple hundred Rabbonim, Bogotas Rabbonim types, not rabbis. And uh, the reason I'm mentioning to you, because there's so many things in this, in a podcast, I'm soon going to be running out of time. Uh, the, the reason I'm mentioning to you is, you can go online. If you see Relaser Silver in action, sort of, uh, if you just Google the March of the Rabbis in 1943 in Washington, D.C., something like that, you'll see a picture that it was a, Originally supposed to be just a PR stunt. But because he got all these Chasha Rabbanim to come along, Ramosha Feinstein was there, many others, and the leader was Razor Silver and Rabbi Gold, the head of the Mizrahi, who was also a big Machron Agos Rabbanim. And uh, Roosevelt wouldn't see them. The most they could do was go to Congress. And uh, on the steps of the Congress, they read a petition in front of the Vice President of the United States, Henry Wallace, who looks like he's a uh, you know, sucking up a, a lemon. He's very uncomfortable to be there. And they're saying, please help the Jews. And uh, it got the five minutes of news. We're interested in it. I, this clip I saw in the Holocaust Museum. And then later when it was online, I actually used it um, in one of my lectures. Now I don't see it so much online. But it is somewhere. If you Google it, if you do something, you'll see. And there's a laser silver in the middle of the whole thing, you know. Uh, trying to do it, and uh, it's famous. It was originally a PR stunt, and it turned into a moment that was not PR. It turned into a moment of genuine uh, meaning and uh, Jewish uh, tragedy, tragic grandeur. It's very interesting. It, it was supposed to be a PR stunt, but because he had real Rabbanim over there, <laughs> it wasn't a stunt anymore. It became a thing by itself. 
that the American Jews in the Reform, they say, oh, vey, what are you, you know, bringing rabbis with beards? It's terrible. But, uh, you know, it, it helped the cause. And eventually, um, now, by the way, Roosevelt would not see them. That's why the rabbi in my shul, where I, where I am now, Rabbi Hertzberg, passed away 30, 40, 50 years ago. He hated Roosevelt because they went to the White House and basically gave him the cold shoulder. He left and left at somebody else to talk to them. So um, he insulted them. But uh, uh, these are the, the limitations of what the Rabbonim could do in those days. Oh, my friends, I've always run up like another hour over here. I can't go on forever in this. I'm not going to do a three, four hour podcast. So let's call this Rebleza Silver Part 1. And maybe in some future time, I'll tr- try to pick up from uh, World War II and after, because he had a very interesting career post-World War II. I've tried in the little bit that I can, it's almost two hours, to try to sketch out a career of somebody whose career reflects the... Um, the uh, poss- He was the best of, the, of that school. I, I mean that. So his career reflects the possibilities as well as the limitations of that model of the Rabbonus. With that, as I say, I'll close down part one and wish you a good day. And again, I want to thank the Brownwoodses and I hope the Neshams of, of Janet's parents will have an Aliyah. And uh, with that, I bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.